If you will, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We are coming so very, very close to the end of this introduction, this prologue of the Apostle John as he begins his gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the obvious connection between verse 14, which will begin our exposition this morning, and back in verse 1, let's reread the entirety of John 1, verses 1 to 18. You follow along as I read. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Many have, during the last almost 2,000 years, pondered the question, how could the triune God of the universe, in the person of Jesus the Christ, come to earth? What the Apostle John has written here regarding the holy incarnation of Jesus, the divine becoming human, is thought to be utterly incompatible by multiplied millions. How could the holy have taken on that which is fleshy? How could the transcendent take on the earthly? How could the sacred and the divine scarcely have come into contact with the transitory and the human? Or, as has been asked many times before, how could God 
become man. It is the, one of the most pondered and puzzling questions in all the world and for all time. How could God become man? And as we just read in verses 14 to 18 of John 1, especially the first part of verse 14, look back at it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. It is in that one phrase, the phrase that has captured the fascination of of so many that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that we are struck in our minds with the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. Indeed, these words of Scripture represent incredibly momentous realities for us as believers and, of course, for the whole world itself. John Gill the famous Baptist preacher who preceded Charles Spurgeon in his first pastorate, wrote this about the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ is a most extraordinary and amazing affair. It is wonderful indeed that the eternal Son of God should become man, that he should be born of a pure virgin, And all this in order to effect the most wonderful work that ever was done in the world, the redemption and salvation of men. It is a most mysterious thing, incomprehensible by men. And what is so extraordinary and amazing and mysterious and incomprehensible about this is why? Why? Why would God do this? And of course, you and I know it is that the Creator should Himself become a creature for us, for our salvation, for our help, for our eternal life. We can can scarcely take it in. That God would visit us astonishingly by becoming a man in order to save sinful men. Let John's words this morning from verses 14 to 18 sink deeply into our minds and into our hearts, especially, beloved, as we come closer and closer in April to Easter season, where, of course, we will celebrate the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and yet, even with those marvelous truths in our mind as we move quickly to Easter, we would affirm that those truths, as marvelous as they are, would not have ever been possible if there hadn't been the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And that is what we want to occupy our hearts and our minds this morning, this idea of the holy incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus from verses 14 to 18. These are some of the most famous verses in all of the Word of God. And I certainly won't do any justice, I don't think, as other more capable preachers will do in expounding these verses. But what I can do is show us in four ways, with four concepts, four ideas 
which might help us capture what John is teaching us here. And those four concepts, those four four ideas are these. Holy incarnation, verse 14. Holy incarnation. Historical verification, verse 15. Historical verification. Thirdly, human participation, verses 16 and 17. And then finally in verse 18, hermeneutical revelation. Hermeneutical revelation. Now I'll give those terms to you again so that if you're taking notes, you can write them down. But those are four key concepts, four key ideas that will help us from John's pen understand the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ as he gives it to us here. And he doesn't give it to us in terms of just what happened with a baby in a manger. He gives us what we might call uh, the theological truths behind them, behind that act, behind the virgin birth of Christ. And we're going to see this, I trust, maybe in a new and a fresh way that will capture the devotion of our hearts. Number one, number one, holy incarnation, holy incarnation. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, in order for us to see the impact of verse 14 upon our minds and hearts, we need to see again this connection between verses 1, 2, and 3 and verse 14. So let's read them together. Verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, speaking of Jesus, the Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14. And the Word, the Lagos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, for John's readers, both Greeks and Jews, both Gentiles and Jewish people, what would have been conjured up in their minds as they read what John writes here? What would they be thinking? What would be their background? What would be their own historical and cultural understanding when John says the word, this word who was with God, this word who was God, this word also became flesh and dwelt among us? What would they have been thinking about such an idea? Well, for the Greek mind, steeped as it would have been in This is a philosophical term now, Platonic dualism. Plato, you remember that philosopher? And because their minds would have been steeped in this kind of dualism, what kind of dualism? A dualism between the physical and the spiritual and how the physical is inferior to the spiritual and how the spiritual being far more superior, the idea of the spiritual coming down to earth in the form of the physical would have been to them preposterous. Preposterous. No wonder men and women have said through the ages, how could someone who was inherently spiritual become physical? And with this dualism in the Greek mind, 
They might have said something like this when John writes what he writes. Preposterous. How can it be? No way. One writer says, The Greeks wished to shed the flesh and fly up to heaven. John says that heaven put on flesh and came down to earth. It would have been the very opposite of what they would have believed or what they would have understood or that which they had been steeped in with this, this idea that the, the physical is inferior to the spiritual, so the spiritual would never invade the physical. They wanted to shed the flesh and go to God in heaven. God the Father put flesh on the Son of God by sending him to the earth as a man. That's undoubtedly the way the Greeks would have responded. What about the Jews? What would they have said? And as it relates to the Jewish mind of John's day, you remember what we said back in verse 1 regarding John's use of the phrase, the Word of God, the Logos of God. He appears to be using it, of course, as I said when we went through that, in that Old Testament sense of the Hebrew word debar, which meant the idea of God speaking a word. And you remember in Genesis 1, in the first 29 verses, and God said, and God said, and God said, God spoke a word. And in that case, he spoke the world by his word into existence. And so that would have been in the Jewish mind. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. All of this seems so far so good, but for the Jewish mind, it would have been utterly foreign to them for their eyes and for their ears to bring something together that they would have assumed could not be joined. And what was that? The divine word, this dabar, and human flesh. How could the divine word be joined, coupled to human flesh? They might have even thought of Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 6. This is what it says. All flesh is grass. Think of the Jewish mind now. All flesh is grass. It's transitory. It's not going to last. All its beauty is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely, Isaiah says, the people are grass. Transitory, fleeting, fading. So why, why then would the divine word, the logos of God, come and dwell as a man because men are fading? They are transitory. They're here like the grass one day and are blown away the next and are no more. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So how can the word of our God come in the form of a human being? Because human beings are fleshy, they're transitory, they're here today, gone tomorrow. So how could the two come to one? And that's where John's concept of holy incarnation arrives like a bolt of lightning out of the blue, even to the Jewish mind, let alone the Greeks. And not only that, look at what else John adds in verse 14. And dwelt among us. And dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. This would have been... This would have been... So incredibly confusing for the Jews. You say, how so? Well, if, if the divine word, 
comes to reside in the human person, the person who's fading, uh, the, the transitory nature of life itself, like the grass of the field that's here today and not tomorrow, and yet this this word, this logos of God was going to come and dwell among us and we would see his glory? No, flesh in itself, of itself, has no glory. It's fading. And by the way, even that phrase there, and dwelt among us, as soon as a Jew would read something like that, he would think of Exodus. Because you know they were very, very educated. They were told every single day of their lives, especially those young men, until their time of bar mitzvah when they would become a man, that they would be steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, right? And so they would be told in no uncertain terms when they read the book of Exodus that there was with God a building of the tabernacle, right? First the tent and then the idea of a tabernacle and then even just the Solomonic temple itself. And when they would hear that word dwell, for instance, from Exodus 25, verse 8, and let them, God says, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, maybe it's coming closer to the Jewish understanding of what God is doing, what he means when he says, and this, this word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Literally, the word dwell, to tabernacle with us. Maybe they're beginning to understand that this theology of incarnation might very well include that the spiritual, the eternal comes to reside in the person of Jesus Christ so that he might tabernacle among us. And therefore, in this flesh, his flesh, there is glory. Not transitoriness, not a fleeting, fading sense of every other human being, not the grass withering in him, but glory shining, outshining from him. And in Exodus chapter 28, you remember that it says, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. What might that be seen in the person of Christ? This priest, right? Prophet, priest, and king? Yes, the garments of human flesh that he took upon himself would be garments of beauty and glory. And for a Jewish mind, that book of Exodus would be coming clearer and clearer as the very fulfillment in the person of Jesus right here. And remember last week when we talked about the transfiguration of Christ there on the holy mountain in Mark chapter 9? And can you, can you imagine these three Jewish men James and John and Peter seeing this transfigured Christ and then talking with Moses and Elijah? All of these Old Testament pictures now would come fully blasting into their minds. Yes, this is it. This is it. And of course, even when 
the church is birthed in Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit descends upon Peter, John, and James, and the fullness of revelation comes to them, they say, yes, this is it. This is the holy incarnation. This is the word. This is the Lagos who has come to us, who is God himself, but who is dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Yes, you have. You've seen his glory in his sojourning on this earth, including the ultimate glory, the idea of the cross, and is seen in that transfiguration, the blazing, white, hot show of the Son of God who is God himself. That's all bound up in this. I told you about the the word dwell, tabernacled with us. Listen to Don Carson. The word made his dwelling among us. More literally translated, the Greek word skenao means that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent, speaking of the human body as a tent, amongst us. For Greek-speaking Jews and other readers of the Greek Old Testament, the term would call to mind the skene, the tabernacle where God met with Israel before the temple was built. The evangelist, John, implies God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in a yet more personal way. What kind of way? In the word become flesh. In the word become flesh. That's what John means when he says here, the word dwelt among us. And he undoubtedly takes even these Greek-speaking Jews to the wilderness wanderings where even Moses said, prepare Israel to see the salvation of your God. And when all of those Egyptian soldiers were drowned in the Red Sea and Moses was saying, see the salvation of the Lord. It's as though John is saying now, in your wilderness wanderings with the sin of your heart and life before you, See in the word made flesh the salvation of the Lord. He's dwelling among us. The word has come to be with us to save us from our sins. This is, this is a, a picture that even Solomon sees, not of Christ himself, of course, but of the Father. Do you remember in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27? This is what Solomon says, and essentially it's very similar to what John is saying here. Listen to Solomon, 1 Kings eight twenty-seven. He said at the dedication of the building of the temple and God's dwelling there, this is what he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Think of John 1. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. In other words, Solomon knew God is immense. God is transcendent. God is holy. God is spiritual. And I know the command to build this temple, and I've obeyed that command, and this temple is now built. But when I look at this temple, and when I think of God saying, build me a sanctuary, build me a temple for which I will dwell among my people, how can God dwell in a temple made with human hands? You're, you're so immense, Lord. How could it be true? And John says, I know it might challenge your thinking to a maximum degree, whether Jews or Greeks, but I tell you this, in the beginning was the Word, this Logos of God. 
He was in the beginning with God. He was the Word. And this Word came from the spiritual dimensions of the heavenlies to make His tabernacle with us so that we would see God dwelling in the midst of His people. This is what's going on here. This is what John is attempting to conjure up in the minds of of his readers. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. If it was a thing so very wonderful in Solomon's eyes, such a marvelous instance of condescension for God to dwell on earth in the manner he did in the tabernacle and temple, how much a greater and more wonderful thing was it for him to dwell with us as our Emmanuel in the manner that he did in the human nature of Christ. I mean, Solomon sees this ornate, beautiful temple that he and his co-workers have built. And he looks at how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is. And yet he knows the transcendent God, the Father. And he says, how can you dwell in something like this? Comparatively speaking, you're too transcendent. It's above you. It's higher than you. Lord, how is it that you, God of the universe, is going to dwell in a temple? And Jonathan Edwards says, how much more wonderful is it to think of our Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling in human flesh? in the human nature of Christ so that he could dwell with us? Do you see the condescension that is occurring here? That's the holy incarnation. Number two. Number two. John, not wanting to make anybody assume that he's just rattling around with philosophical ideas, that he's just wanting people to understand this uh, erudite concept philosophically that the word, the logos, has chosen to dwell among men. Uh, It sounds philosophical. Uh, It sounds uh, so airy-fairy. It sounds like something out of a storybook, maybe even Greek mythology. And so, to make sure that his readers understand, I'm not talking about some philosophy. I'm not just talking about some idea. I'm not making up some mythology. Here's what I'm doing. I'm telling you that this is what God actually did, and it happened in space and in time, and there's historical verification for it. Look at verse 15. Here's the historical verification of this. There was a man, John, John the Baptist. He was born. He was born in this world. He was a real man. He really existed. And it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he, speaking of Jesus, this was he of whom I said, he comes after he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What's John the Baptist saying? Here's a real man, John the Baptist. He was really born. He did really spend time in the wilderness of Judea and he really did come onto the scene and he really did witness about the Messiah and he really did say this very thing. I know that historically speaking, chronologically speaking, I was born six months prior to Jesus. And therefore, in that progenitor, I should be of superior rank than he, but I am not. Why? Because he existed before me. Isn't that an implicit affirmation of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ? 
It's a historical verification. Yes, it is. But it's also an implicit affirmation that Jesus Christ, who was born in that manger, who lived a sinless life, was actually existent prior to his physical birth. That's what he's saying. That's the idea. This is, this is the pre-existent Jesus Christ being aff- affirmed by John the Baptist. That's the historical verification. That's why John's gospel is rooted in history. There are a lot of people, and you, you probably don't know this, but there are a lot of people who deny the historicity, not simply of Jesus, that he existed, not simply of John the Baptist, but they deny even the historicity of this very gospel account of John, the Apostle John. There have been entire books written about the substantiation and the verification that this is actually a bona fide, genuine historical account that John the Apostle wrote in which he spoke about actual historical people like John the Baptist. And I thank God for these scholars and those who defend the Scripture by getting into the kinds of scholarly details that you and I might not ever read but can stand up to the harshest criticism about whether or not the Bible is true and whether or not this is history. And so John adds, I tell you, the Holy Incarnation is real, and there was a man who was there, and he's the forerunner of Messiah, and his name is John, and he came as a witness, and what John says is this, I know he was born after me, but he existed prior to me, so therefore he has the superior rank. That's the historical verification of this account in verse 15. Thirdly, let's call it human participation, human participation. You say, what does that mean? Can you imagine the thrill of the human heart, whose ever heart that is, that not only did God hatch a plan after the counsel of his own will to have the second person of the Godhead, Jesus himself, the Son of God, come into this world as Son, who would then be born of a virgin, who would live a sinless life, die an agonizing death as a payment for the sin of sinners like you and like me. And then this historical verification of John the Baptist, it is true, it is real, he is the Messiah, I'm his forerunner, prepare the way of the Lord. And you say, all of those things are fine and good. They're well and good. But how does it affect me? How does all of that affect me? And here's John's answer. Look at verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all, what? Received. And what is it that we received? Grace upon grace. That's the payoff, my friends. That's the payoff. That's the equal sign at the end of the equation. You know what you get as a result of this holy incarnation and this verification that it was real, that it happened in space and time? You know what you receive? Grace upon grace. That's the, that's the human participation. That's what you and I receive. Grace upon Grace, this Son of God coming into time manifests God's grace in fullest measure and dispenses that abundant grace to us. And not just grace, 
Grace upon grace. You say, what does that mean? What does grace upon grace mean? Well, it could mean something, nothing other than this. Grace, 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 a whole bunch of grace. It could mean that. Just oodles of grace, abundant grace, much grace. Or it might even be something like this. There was grace in the Old Testament. Now there is grace in the New Covenant. There was grace in the Old Covenant. Don't ever let anybody tell you there was no grace in the Old Covenant. That's not true. Listen to Psalm 5-7. The abundance of your steadfast love. Steadfast love. That has been translated in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, so often that idea of hesed, the, the steadfast love of the Lord, into the Greek word charis for grace. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Psalm 69, answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. Psalm 106, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Don't ever let anybody tell you that there is no grace in the Old Testament and there is grace in the New Testament. That's not true. It's grace, the grace of God with those old covenant believers and what they did, just like we saw in Psalm 15. Who can, who can dwell on your holy hill? The person who has seen the law of God, they've seen how sinful they are because the law slays them and shows them what a sinner they are. And then they fall on their knees in repentance and faith and they ask Yahweh God for mercy, for steadfast love, for hesed, and he then dispenses it. He dispenses it because... He's a gracious God. And all of those passages I just read to you are examples of them. And then when we come into the New Testament, Jesus said himself in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and might have it how? Abundantly. Much grace. Super grace. There's grace in the old as well as in the new. And in the new, we see it personified in the person of Jesus who came to dispense Grace. You say, wait a minute. But it says here, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That looks like a contrast law and grace. Well, there is a contrast between law and grace, but this is not merely saying it was just law in the Old Testament and there was no grace, and there's only grace in the New Testament and no law. No, there's a beautiful interweaving of the concept of the law of God in the Old Testament that shows a person that they can't live up to the standards of the Ten Commandments. And when you realize you can't, you fall upon the mercy of God and there is grace available for you. And if you live as we do in the New Covenant era, and you're seeing that same slaying of the law of God in your own heart because you know you can't keep the Ten Commandments, you know you can't live up to the standard that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and you realize that you are a sinner broken before God, and you ask God in repentance and faith for mercy and grace, then he tells you it's available, and it's through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. There is law, and you've broken it, and so have I. And when we realize what lawbreakers we are, we fall upon our face 
asking, pleading, begging for the mercy of God. And he says, I have a plan. And that plan was for my own son to die so that there would be those who through law-breaking would see grace and truth be realized through Jesus Christ. And could I say here that if you believe that there's another way to God, if you believe there's some kind of other path that's as acceptable to God, this verse refutes that. This is what the Word of God says. Grace and truth is realized through whom? Muhammad? Buddha? Confucius? Your own will, your own whims, your own desires, your own good deeds. Just recently, I had a man come over to check for termites in my home. And when I spoke to him about attending Thousand Oaks Bible Church and giving him a, a little card with an invitation, he went right in as a Catholic person and saying, yes, I was in a Catholic school, and I asked a lot of questions for which I got my knuckles wrapped by the nuns. And I continue to ask those questions in my heart. And now I've come to the place of hoping and believing that when I stand before God one day, my good works will outweigh my bad. And I hope he comes to our church. And I hope I'm able to, to talk with him. Because grace and truth is realized only through Jesus Christ. And what he did, his merit, his work, his cross... And not anything I could do. Because frankly, I don't have any good works. They're tinged with sin. They're tinged with the things that will actually send me to a Christless eternity and not to heaven. No one will ever stand before God and ever believe, ever hope, and ever have good works in this life done by themselves through their own merit that will ever outweigh their bad. It will never happen. And what a shock it will be for those who assume they will be accepted by God. Grace and truth, my friends, is realized only through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. Fourth and finally, hermeneutical revelation. Now, I know that's a really big word, and I used it because it's my fourth H. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word that means this, interpretation, interpretation, a, a making known of something, an understanding of something, a relating of something. And what is this relating of revelation in verse 18? It is this, no one has seen God ever, John says, the only God Reference to Jesus, who is at the Father's side, or in his lap, or in his bosom, he has revealed him. He's made him known. He's related to us who God is. He's the one who reveals to us, makes known who God the Father is. And that's all we need. He's made him known. You say, how has he made him known? John 1.1. 1, 1. The Word was God. John 1.18, the only begotten God, the only Son of His love. He has made Him known. He's revealed Him. By the way, this particular word is where we derive the word exegesis. 
This is this is the son exegeting, explaining, revealing, relating who the Father is. How many times in the gospel accounts, even with Jesus' own disciples, do they say, show us the Father, show us the Father? And he says, how many times shall I say this? If you've seen me, you've seen whom? The Father. He is making the Father known. And when he says such a thing, no wonder the Jews say in John ten thirty three, you being a man... Make yourself out to be God. No wonder John 19, 7 says, he has made himself the son of God. Because in their minds, son and father are co-equal of the same essence. So are you trying to tell us, Apostle John, as you write these words, and as we as Greeks and Jews are reading what you're writing, are you telling us that this word, this logos, has come to dwell among us? as the representative, the revealer, the exegete of God the Father? So that he's so close to the Father, he's co-equal with the Father, he's of the same essence with the Father, that he is the only qualified one to reveal who the Father is because no man can see God and live. You remember Moses? He wanted to see God. And God says, I can't show you my face because no man can see my face and live. The person of Jesus Christ is the revealer of God's face. That's who he is. He's he's at the Father's side. He's in his bosom. He's in the lap of the Father. And when he comes to this earth and when he lives and when he teaches, he shows us the Father. People have asked me, When we go to heaven, will we see God the Father? What's the answer? No. No. Because what does John 4.24 say? God is spirit. You, you, You don't see spirit. What will we see then? Will we see God? Doesn't Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes say, Blessed are those who do this and this and this, and they shall see God? Yes. What God will they see? The second person of the Godhead. And you know what? That's all we need. That's all we need. We'll see the person of Jesus Christ. We'll see the nail prints in his hands and his feet. And we will see the one for whom was pierced for our transgressions. And when we see him, we will see God. For God is in Christ. That's who we'll see. And that's enough for us. Why? Because He, the Son, reveals the Father. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. That's all we need. That's all we'll want. We will will stand in eternity praising and worshiping God in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, because he has shown us the Father. Isn't that wonderful? This is the Holy Incarnation. And there's a historical verification because indeed you and I are human participants in this grace upon grace and all of that because Jesus Christ interpreted hermeneutically, interpreted, revealed who the Father is for us and that's all we need. 
My friends, as we move closer, not only to Easter, but every Sunday of our lives, we need to see this truth, that Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and He dwelled among His people, and we've seen His glory. He's shown us the Father. As we close, listen to this this wonderful, prosaic meditation upon the incarnation of Christ. In fact, maybe you should just bow your heads. And as you bow your heads, listen to this meditation. I trust it will be spiritually uplifting and encouraging for you. Dane Ortland says, The Word became flesh. Have you ever really stopped to consider? This is too wonderful for words. It is easy to grow overly familiar with the incarnation. But the fact that the God of heaven became one of us is trivialized if we consign it to little more than a warm devotional thought at Christmas time. Let this extraordinary tenet of orthodoxy sink in afresh. The Word, the Logos, the central meaning of the universe, the integrative center to reality, the climax and culmination of all human history, that which summoned solar systems into instant existence at just the right time, became a helpless baby. This is unfathomable. It is not a point of doctrine to download mentally and then move on. We do not master this like a multiplication table. It is a point to be chewed on and digested. It is to be wondered at. The Word became flesh. Not the Word created flesh, though that is true. The Word became flesh. This was another portable temple, though this time not carried around by the priests, but on his own two legs. This calls for meditation. This calls for worship. The incarnation is not only worthy of our wonder, but foundational to our theology. It is the great prerequisite to every other facet of Christian salvation. There is no crucifixion without incarnation first. There is no resurrection without incarnation first. There is no second coming of Christ if there is not a first coming. There is no imputation without the incarnation. For Jesus came as the second Adam, undoing what Adam had done, disobedience, and doing what Adam failed to do, obedience. In becoming man, the Son of God leapt from the safety of heaven and plunged into the world to save his drowning people. The incarnation, therefore, has human sin as its instigation, divine love as its motivation, the Holy Spirit as its efficient cause in the virgin birth, revelation as its content, redemption as its goal, and worship as its result. This is the surprise of John. The Creator became a creature so that we creatures can be restored to our Creator. Heavenly Father, as we bow together now and thank you for this Word, this Word of God, may we indeed bow in humble adoration at His holy incarnation. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Word who has become flesh 
and for we as true Christians beheld his glory. Glory as from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his name we pray. Amen.